Okay, hey folks, this is the first episode of our podcast, Breaking Left. And my name is Troy, and I'm hanging out with two of my very dear friends, Corey Archibald. Hey everybody, this is Corey. And Bill Ryan. Hey, it's Bill. <laughs> and today... It's it's Bill. Today is the, uh, it's the getting to know you episode. It's sort of our session zero, if you will. Right, session zero. So real quick, the intention is not for me to facilitate dialogue in this podcast experience. It's for us to kind of share that spot. But what I wanted to dig into just for people who are tuning in for the first time or people who are like, these people are so busy already. What the heck are they thinking? Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? No, um, actually, really? no, actually. The, so the reason why this idea kind of came about and I know Troy, you had approached me, you and Bill were already talking about doing this and you, you asked me if I wanted to join in and I was like, you know what? I don't have enough to do. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, I'm going to go ahead and sign up for another uh, <laughs> time vampire. No, because these are the conversations that we have all the time and they happen all hours of the day and night and they drag on and we have epiphanies together and we have tough talks with each other about about accountability and action and getting into the just the real nitty gritty of things um, within the political space that we all operate in. And so we decided, well, like, let's put this out there where other people can participate in that as well. And we can learn more. Yeah, good answer. How about you, Bill? Yeah, I agree. That's a really good answer. Part of it is, you know, we're clearly undergoing a pretty significant political moment somewhat of a historical moment uh, in the U.S. and more broadly in the world. It's really kind of interesting to see like uh, left-wing discourse kind of take off in the U.S., whereas a decade ago, I think there were a lot of people like us on, you know, here uh, who were maybe seeking out alternative worldviews, alternative frameworks to understand the world or understand what was happening in the aftermath of 08 or just anything. And it was difficult to search out. And now it's like, there is a tremendous amount of really good content out there. And I just kind of want to be a part of it. Yeah. Invite some of those people on. That's right. That's part of it too. Right. Yeah. To, you know, I think one of the things that are that I really love about podcasting is that it changes the way that you look at the world as opposed to being somebody who is sort of consuming it. You can engage in it in a deeper way, you know, acknowledging that podcasts are, you know, they're podcasts and that, you know, it's not like we're world news tonight, but I really have valued personally what my friendship with you two has afforded me the opportunity to just stop the world for a minute and go, that was weird as fuck. Right. <laughs> Right. You know, and just sort of find a tether. And uh, and I, I feel like in addition to that, that we're doers, we're people who it's not enough really to sit on the sidelines and and ponder a thing Though we do a lot of that, you know, as we engage and, and sort of get our firsthand knowledge of a circumstance or a situation. If we've identified something as injurious to the world, we will be motivated by that to engage in some way to mitigate or prevent or solve that issue. And I, I appreciate that. And I think to being able to have a conversation with two people who are as engaged and as, you know, as an individual, it's near impossible to know everything. But you two get pretty damn close. And so it's really <laughs> nice to be able to, to hang out and, and get some perspective on a thing. And more than once, I've had the opportunity to sort of course correct what my impression of a thing was, whether that's something that, you know, I mean, we're all engaged in, in various ways, a pretty frontline line, you know, in the yeah. in the scheme of things, do we want to talk a little bit about our individual history? Like, you know, what makes us, you know, and what what are we doing that that kind of would be considered the vanguard of some of these initiatives? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I'll go. You know, it's interesting, Bill, the point that you were making about how much has changed in the last kind of 10 years, 10, 12 years in particular, because right now, as we're recording this, uh, it is the 10th anniversary of Occupy Wall Street. And that was a really key moment for me, as it was for a lot of people on the left today. For me in particular, because I grew up in a pretty conservative household and I, you know, grew up under kind of a conservative worldview. I was never like a hard right person myself. Uh, my dad was in, in the army. And so I had the opportunity to grow up in Germany and had the opportunity to travel and see the world through all of my formative years. I was in Berlin when the wall fell, you know, so had just had the opportunity to see and experience so many just major transformations in society and, uh, and, and to be like firsthand witness to history in moments like that. But through all that, we, we kind of maintained as a lot of military families do, although fewer than people think. It's not completely ubiquitous in the military. Not everybody is a is a hard right conservative in the military. Um, that definitely not anymore today. But uh, as is very common in a lot of military families, relatively conservative. I would say my parents were Reagan Republicans, and so I grew up with that kind of mindset. Being a high schooler in the '90s, uh, not to date myself too much, but yeah, it's, uh, fuck it, I'm 44, <laughs> so I'm I'm a late Gen Xer. And um, it wasn't until I started to work overseas which I've been working overseas for a little over 17 years now. Spent most of the last 17 years in the Middle East and parts of that in Asia as well. And I was actually working as a military contractor in Afghanistan when Occupy Wall Street unfolded. And I, I had already like taken some time to study the fallout from the mortgage crisis, you know, the whole 2008 financial collapse, which was another pivotal mo moment that started to kind of change the way that I thought about all of these issues. But when Occupy Occupy Wall Street happened, like I immediately resonated with what the protesters were doing. I was like, hell yeah, that's what we need to be doing. The banks are just running the world and our politicians are letting them do it. They are co-conspirators. And this is the kind of thing that we need to be doing. But I was sitting in Afghanistan and I was also the sole income earner for my family at that time. So I, I uh, you know, I didn't have the option to just like, you know, have the principles to like walk away from that job that I very much needed um, in that moment. But I was very supportive of, of the effort and followed it very closely and really started to like digest different content and, you know, think about things in a different way. And immediately I noticed that my peers around me, a lot of whom were military veterans or like me had grown up in military families or had like me had been working as a defense contractor for a long time. So they also came from kind of a conservative worldview. They had one reaction, you know, which is basically, you know, go get a real job. <laughs> you know, they, you all remember the way that the right wing spoke disparagingly of the Occupy movement. I'm surrounded by all of these people that have that worldview. And I'm like, am I crazy? Am I the only person that sees that, you know, like, obviously I'm not crazy because there's people here in Zuccotti Park and in cities all around the country and the world that are saying the same thing. And that was a real wake up call for me to realize like, I'm not the only person that sees this, but in the room that I'm in right now and the space that I'm working and living in, I feel like I'm very much alone. And I'm in a radically different place today, in part because of kind of the work that I have pursued since then, and you know, and the kinds of friends that I've made and the the work that I've gotten involved in. But also because more of us are kind of coming out of the shadows. We used to sort of like confer in secret, and now we all have podcasts. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the head the hegemonic consensus is broken down. 
You know, what's interesting to me is the the Occupy movement, I was not engaged in it. I wasn't around people who were, but I was doing activism. Bill, were you super connected to the to the Occupy? Not really personally connected. At that time, I had already just, I did four years in the Navy, got out, and then I think I was in undergrad in Illinois at the time. But I had, due to social networks and stuff, friends or friends of friends who were camped out there or kind of promoting or propagating uh, what they were doing there. I would say that, yeah, the situating of Occupy, I guess, right after the collapse, several years after the illegal invasion of Iraq, very formative experiences and then it's like after Occupy I clearly thought there was a clear kind of like a little nuke set off there it was just hard to figure out where because it did pride itself so much on being a leaderless movement and everything and I think when I knew it was that Occupy had really struck a, a, a chord a very deep chord I was in Denmark and typical Tom Friedman fashion I was talking to a, a cab driver and he, he was just a young guy and he was just like he explained how he felt very uh this would have been 2012 I think he, he felt very you know in lockstep with Occupy etc etc and I was just like wow that's really interesting like what's going on here because I think there's been something happen on a global scale that has not been talked about very much, which is like, I think there are millions and millions of people in the so-called Western world who have been living in massive, like deflationary spirals. And it's not just in the U.S. It's been happening in where deindustrialized UK has been happening in deindustrialized Europe. So it's not just like a U.S. specific thing, but because our political systems are so different, it manifests a little bit differently in each place, you know? So we have Occupy and then the Tea Party. And in the background, the war on terror is still going on, right? And it's just by 11 or 12 or so, it's just faded into, well, the next thing we hear really about Afghanistan was last month when we withdrew, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like all these things kind of jumbled. They Like like you said, you kind of were in rooms at certain points over the last decade. And you're like, am I the only person who thinks like this, believes this stuff or whatever? And it's just like, well, part of it is I think that there's a lot of kind of, you know, a lot of internet conversation that happens and and here's the thing but even through the internet conversations it's like people like david graber he was linked up with occupy relatively publicly right he's a phenomenal academic people like that are affiliated with these movements and they have very deep broad knowledge and they're prolific writers prolific thinkers you know so it's like that i think just all that together kind of you know has gone into uh, like a formative type of experience for me and a lot of other people who have been interacting with not only the, this media, but the books, the intellectuals, the historians, the histories, you know, even outside of historians where you just may want to go get a little closer to source material than to go through mm-hmm. a historian. So I don't know. Yeah, that, that's just kind of like kind of rambled a little bit, but it's like, it's just, it is, it's kind of a jumble of things over the last. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I'm thinking about Occupied particularly and why I wasn't engaged, and I, I'm. What what era is? Are we talking about like uh, t- 2011? 2011. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I mean, I would have been at the height of you know video game development for a big multinational, and we were traveling a lot. We were all 
over the place. And it's curious to me, I, you know, in, in, when I run into people in other countries, they are very curious about what, what's going on in the in the U.S. And sometimes, you know, yeah. it, it's overblown. Sometimes it's right on point, which is almost more disturbing when they're, yeah. when, it's so dire sometimes um, when I'm talking to people who, uh, you know, from other countries or in other countries. But, uh, you know, sorry, I didn't want to derail us on this, but I, I definitely, I think that the Occupy stuff is really fascinating and it is a representation of how things were boiling, you know, and, and yeah. getting us to where we are now. Yeah, there's two things uh, when traveling abroad that I kind of notice, and it's one, Black American culture is a very globalized phenomenon. It's an undeniable mm-hmm. type of globalized phenomenon. And two, every country on the planet cares about American politics to a, a limited they degree, do. to a certain degree. I do, yeah. Boy, and let me tell you, as somebody who has, so between like growing up overseas with my dad in the military and my work overseas, I have lived over half of my life outside of the United States. And so I'm basically permanently an expat. Right. And I run into this all the time, especially once my coworkers in particular, or like, you know, my, my neighbors, once they become conscious of the fact that I'm politically engaged, that I'm interested in politics, that I'm knowledgeable about American politics, not just American politics, but politics in, in all kinds of places, and that I, I follow these issues and I care about them, you know, then they want to like open up and talk to me about that kind of stuff. And it's really interesting how in certain parts of the world in particular, there are a lot lot of people that actually follow the American political system more closely than most Americans do, especially in Europe, because they understand, yeah. they, they really understand that what America does drives the world for better, for worse, often for worse. And, yeah. and so like, they're looking for like, okay, which way is the nuke coming from like metaphorically or not? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And they're also, it's like a telenovela or something. They're like, okay, so I heard this about this. And, you know, just the other day, I was having a conversation with someone who's in the Nordics and they were said, is everybody, you know, getting evicted now? And I said, you know, because how his country handled right. the pandemic, very different than, you know, than how we handled it or handling it. And, and he, he just, he literally thought that um, he had been very keen on Cory Bush. And uh, and this mm-hmm. is a conversation you know, happening around my day job around tabletop role play with a person who lives in the Nordics. So it was very, um, right. very interesting to hear that. And, and uh, I, I do want to touch on that part. I just, you know, kind of realized we know each other through politics of some kind. Yeah. Yeah, electoral. Yeah, we actually all we we all converged on one campaign in particular. Um, actually, <laughs> um, although I didn't get to know Bill until um until later, but we did cross paths on the Sarah Smith twenty eighteen campaign, which was a byproduct of brand new Congress, which is how I got to be politically active. I went from being someone who was interested in kind of a spectator and a discusser of politics to a person who decided to become involved in politics through brand new Congress. Yeah, from a spectator to a specter. Yeah, wow. yeah, absolutely. That's right. <laughs> I'm addicted. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Bill, that's where Bill and I met. And then I mm-hmm. just yeah. hung out in Slack in Brand New Congress until you folks were like, okay, can you just do something if you're going to be around? <laughs> that he see Troy Troy is terminably humble and um, constantly downplaying uh, his attributes. Um, Troy is the kind of person who shows up in whatever space that he's in, and he immediately finds a multitude of ways to make himself not only useful but indispensable. And oh. so that's what he did with Brand New Congress. And so we um, we said we're not letting you leave. I'm sorry. 
you know, to stay. Yeah. And it's been a, it's been a gift truly. I mean, honestly, a, a real touchstone for me in some of the more, more chaotic moments and, and given brand new Congress and the work that we do, we can sometimes be fairly close to the epicenter of, of some of the things that go on in the world, uh, notable moments, which is surreal in itself. But I'll tell you, I feel a little better about the world when I am reminded that what you hear and see in the news is it's gone through a few digestive systems by that point. The thing is, like what your colleague was saying about is everybody getting evicted? Well, okay, not literally everybody, but there are millions of Americans being evicted right now, violently so. There was a, a story that Cori Bush just highlighted where a teenager, a 16-year-old in Florida, of course, Florida, uh, a 16-year-old stole $4.45 worth of pocket change. And that got reported to the apartment complex that their family lived in, and their family was evicted because of it. What like is, were they? Yes, were they on, that is a that, thing that happened. That so yeah, like not literally uh, everybody. No, to your colleague, but yeah, a lot of people are violently being evicted in the middle of a pandemic. And of course, it was a black family. Of course, and the majority. And this yeah. is, this happened in Tampa, where there's there's a majority black population there. Where or well, I don't know if this. I don't think it's a majority black population, but the uh, the majority of the evictions happened to the black community in that area. Of course, that are are enforced by the local police. So I mean, this is it, it, uh, it is. It's a pandemic that is disproportionately affecting certain segments of American society, predominantly communities of color. And so we're not all experiencing it, but it is still impacting all of us in one way or right. another. Yeah, that's a real, I, I'm, so when you say enforced by the police, it's one of those, like they're going in and throwing all their stuff out under the lawn and that kind of yep. thing? Yep. God damn it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in Florida, we, I mean, like, they're having the worst part of their pandemic right now. Ever, I think the whole country had its worst about a year ago. Now it's somewhat equivalent or just surpassed it totally in places like Florida and maybe even Mississippi and Alabama. Some of these scenarios are these scenes that are being painted by some healthcare workers and panhandle and, and places. Yeah, it's bad in Alabama right now. My, um, at the time of this recording, a few weeks ago, my father passed away and my family all lives in Alabama. And I, my father passed away not from COVID. Um, however, he had gone into the hospital for an urgent surgery that could not be delayed. And uh, he was older. He was 79 and asthmatic and diabetic and had to have a major operation on his uh, on his lungs. And when he got out of surgery, you know, when you if you've ever had surgery, you know that they they wheel you out of the operating room and they put you in post-op in recovery. And that's the the temporary room that they hold you in for like, a you know, an hour or two while you're coming out of the anesthesia and just making sure everything's OK before they take you onto a room. Well, they brought him out of surgery. They had him in post-op and there were no rooms available because the hospital was completely overrun with COVID patients and still is. He was in in post-op for two days for 48 hours and he ended up having a you know a, a medical complication and uh, and passed away as a result of that and you know did it happen because he was in a stressful environment didn't have a, a room and you know like uh, we, we are certain that the hospital staff took exceptional care of him under really extraordinary bad circumstances right. we're, we're confident yeah. in that but I, I don't know that that hospital overcrowding was a contributing factor I don't know that it wasn't I know that it didn't help 
And it was a contributing factor to your strain and your stress and the family strain and stress. And yeah, because the... we weren't able to be there. Um, nobody in the family was able to be there with him. My sister was able to go in and visit for a few hours, but no one was there with him the morning that he passed away. And and ours is by far not the, the most egregious kind of situation. There are lots of people like that, that need urgent surgery that literally can't even get in to get the surgery. Right. Like, right, right. But like, I, I, I was just blown away. I couldn't believe that like someone would go in for an operation that was planned. It was an urgent surgery, but it wasn't like an unplanned, you know, it was an emergency surgery. It wasn't like that. Right. Uh, it was a scheduled surgery that he had gone in for. And I, I just couldn't comprehend how a person could be in the operating room and then they come out and the hospital just doesn't have rooms anymore. Like I thought you go into operation, like there's a room there. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah, just, exactly. That like, one is reserved, right. <laughs> you know, or that bed at least is reserved, you know, but I mean, they're, they're obviously like, again, the hospital is doing the best that they can under these horrifying circumstances. It, it is bad in Alabama. And Alabama is, I don't know if they're currently, but at the time that that happened, they were the least vaccinated state in the in the nation. Right. So do with that what you will. Right. And I've heard similar stories of what you're talking about. So even though you can't pinpoint for sure whether or not it was a direct link to the overcrowding of hospitals, that type of story is something I've heard several times in the area I'm in. It's that. And then another like a genre of story is this, you know, conservative either media personality or political personality that denies it and then dies of it, you know, yeah, and yeah. and. Like, there's been so many. I just, they're like writing articles of just like summaries of all of these different types of you know, that's the sad part is, is like how many hospital rooms or hospitals in general did these people go to contributing to overflowing with their what can only really be called, in my opinion, irresponsible rhetoric? Absolutely. Well, you even take it back before you get to the hospital. How many people got sick, unnecessarily sick? Uh, how many children got sick, you know, that can't be vaccinated right now? That whole thing is I'm having a hard time finding the words for it because it yeah. definitely definitely feels like a callousness, a, a sort of refusal to believe in their own fragility as a human. And, you know, that it's sort of like, you know, bootstraps, you know, on crack. Like, I'm just so I, I'm impervious to these things and I'm not going to get the, you know, the vaccination and you can't make me get the vaccination. And now I'm dead thing is is like we have to we have to look at the systems that create yeah. that that circumstance because you know right. yes you're always going to have that asshole that thinks that way yeah. but it was the failure of our government to take this pandemic seriously from the beginning and the failure to take it seriously to this day that we are still failing to adequately provide access to testing like we're acting like we don't need to test people anymore like are you kidding me like our new right. infections are happening at the same rate or higher that they were at the height of the pandemic last summer. Like, and, and it's so hard to find a place to even get a test now. Like, that is, yeah. there is no excuse for that. There's no excuse for the fact that you have to pay to get tests, period. There are places where you can get the test for free, but it's really hard to get in there. We're making it hard for people to get vaccinated. We're making it hard for people to get tested. We're making it basically impossible for people to be able to feed their families and stay housed because we've yeah. refused to, like, take the economic steps necessary to provide people security 
security. Like that is a systems failure from top to bottom that like I am angry with the people that are out there waving and screaming my freedoms and I'm I'm angry with them. Yes, I am. And I'm not going to apologize for being angry with them. But I do also understand that we are not being given the, the conditions that would be necessary for us to actually navigate this crisis and come out of it on the other side whole. And prevail and prevail. Yeah. You know, the other thing about this is I think it, it touches on the notion that two things can be true, even though they may be in opposition. And that is to say, we can agree that people are being assholes and they're being obstinate and proud and and uh, and that it's killing them themselves and people around them, generally people that they care about ostensibly. But that's kind of where we want to live with this podcast is that understanding that it's never as simple as, you know, just get vaccinated. There's nuance, right? Right. Well, it's like, is anybody surprised after 40 years of anti-government rhetoric and monopolization of the economy and imperial wars where you don't talk about monopolization of the economy or your imperial war? You know, is anyone surprised that the logical conclusion of that is to have a large part of your public who fundamentally distrusts everything about your society? The only thing that many people in this society trust right now is their basic level of consumerism it, because it's things mm-hmm. they can go they can go earn money or they can go buy things and own it yeah, yeah. and yeah. own it right and everything else in a lot of these people's lives they feel arguably rightly that they've been lied to so much that they're still be going to be lied to and still being lied to it's like we're really talking about the opioid crisis now but that's been going on for 20 years that's right yeah But, you know, at this point, the point you just made was so brilliant, Bill, about trusting their individual consumerism, because that is exactly what made Occupy so powerful. It was a moment where all the magic that we have been told for 40 years about how the economy functions and how wealth is created and how stability and economic prosperity is created, all of it came crashing down and was revealed to be a lie. Now, there certainly there are people that are, there's probably people listening to this right now going like, I knew it was a lie all the time. Well, you know, good for you. I didn't. Good job, Uh, yeah. was a moment right. where it was really crystal clear to me that, that something that I was told worked one way turned out to not work that way at all. And I had to work really hard to understand why that crash happened and what came out of it. And to realize like how fragile and, and tenuous the overwhelming majority of us are. Of course, people live in extreme poverty. You know, they have known this all along, but the rest of us, like our wealth is an illusion. Almost everyone in America is not more than a couple of paychecks away from being unhoused. That's right. You know, and the, what what blew my yep. mind about all this is the idea that if, if wealth is an illusion, and it is, it's, you know, a, a result of a system that we've created and, and support and believe in, then debt and, and poverty is a purposeful a- exercise. It is a, it's, there has to be poor people if you need rich people. If rich people need to be rich, then there has to be people who don't have a thing on purpose. And that's the, that's actually the moment that I became radicalized. Like when I just said, we can, ch- you know, all of this struggle. And all you know, growing up and thinking of all the things that people had lost, or people that I knew in you know in my small city that like you know lost their home to taxes, or lot you know, mm-hmm. or it, you you name it, and all of these mechanisms that are put in place did not take into account circumstances, and that poverty, you know, I it basically just in my mind, it suddenly struck me that you know poverty is a kind of violence that we inflict on people. Yeah, it is. 
And when I say that it's like wealth is an illusion for almost all of us, what I mean is that like our relative prosperity is finance. It is we yeah. we live in houses that are owned by the banks that a lot of people had taken from them in 2008 or were renters. One of those two things, you know, we we a lot of times like you you buy a car and then by the time you're done paying off that car, you immediately have to buy another new car. And so you're just forever buying you're, you're forever paying for a car that's technically owned by the bank again. You know, our we use our credit cards to you know to buy the cell phones that we use and the and and I'm guilty of this. I mean, I have I have credit card debt. Um, most of us do. I you know we we use it for things that are emergencies too, but we also use it to like you know buy the the things that make our lives relatively comfortable. And so it's like our prosperity is more a measure of our ability to acquire debt than it is an actual measure of like the 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 money and the resources at our disposal. The only people that are actually rich are that 1%. That's right. Yeah. You know, and I think about those people who are so, they're on that curve of what people bring in and, you know, wealth versus not wealth. I mean, poverty, we're talking like the, the lower tiers of our economic ladders where we extract all the money from. So, you know, so it's like fees and and uh, you can get a credit card at some outrageous rate. And, you know, it, it is uh, even homes and every everything's more expensive if you're broke. Yeah. Right. The, the interest rates are higher. The ability to get credit yeah. is less frequent. Like, right. yeah, it's wild that, yeah, the poorer you get, the more expensive it gets to live in this country. And, you know, for me, like, you know, I talked about how Occupy was a big inflection point for me. I would say that my my shift towards the left did start sooner than that. And it was economically driven. I um, was shortly after the dot com bubble. Those of you that are old enough to have lived through that um, as as workers, there was another lesser reported on telecom bubble that I was part of. I used to work in wireless telecom where we were working for companies that built cell phone towers back when that was a new thing. And there was a there was a big bubble. There was a huge building build up. Um, the industry became overinflated and I was living in Atlanta at the time. And like overnight, it sort of collapsed on itself. Companies started to consolidate and like thousands of us, thousands in Atlanta alone were laid off overnight. And I was at that stage in my, my work life where I had been out of college and working just long enough to have too much experience to be that I was overqualified for certain jobs that I was applying for, but not enough experience to be qualified for the next level up jobs. So I had really struggled to find work. Um, I was unemployed for about six months and um, I never applied for unemployment because I didn't know that I could. I didn't know that I was allowed to do that kind of thing. I, <laughs> I didn't understand it. Um, and I had grown up in a household where like that was a sign of weakness and that was a thing that you just didn't Being do. Good. And so I had like a, I had a That's mental right. yep, stigma yep. against it. And I just didn't even consider it that it was a thing that I, I could or should seek out as a means of support. And so I, I, you know, struggled. I borrowed money from friends and crashed and here and there. And I ended up waiting tables. And I did that for a couple of years, shortly after 9-11. And I went from, you know, this is early 2000s. So I went from somebody who was fresh out of college making like $50,000 a year, which was big money to me at 22, to overnight, I was making $15,000 a year when I was lucky with tips. And you talk about right. like a like a wake up call, like everything in my life changed. Like all of my choices became incredibly incredibly constricted and it was so 
so hard for me to get out of that. And that is actually how I ended up taking a job in a war zone because I couldn't get out of that hole that I fell in. And everything that I tried, I just I couldn't climb back out of it. And then I had this magic opportunity to take a job in a dangerous place and make enough money to make myself whole again. And I did it. And 17 years later, I am still overseas. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always love talking with expats. You know, generally they have a very different take on the world at large. But when you manage to get back and knowing the kind of pandemic and stuff is, is complicating all of that, but just in a world where that is not difficult, how long is it before you're like, okay, I got to get out of here. I got to go. Um, got to get out of here. Like a week. <laughs> if not, depending on which part of the country I'm visiting. <laughs> right. I, I definitely, I definitely do feel like a stranger in a strange land when I come back to the U.S. I, yeah, I you know, I love to see my family, but I do feel like a fish out of water for sure. And I, I often feel like, again, depending on what part of the country I'm in, and that has changed a lot in the last, not just part of the country, I'll say, uh, depending on the company I'm keeping, no matter what part of the country I'm in, I'll put it that way, <laughs> yeah. because that has changed a lot for me in the last four or five years in particular, since I've become more politically engaged, that, you know, I, I feel less like I'm an, an alien wandering around in a, a, a world full of people that don't see the same universe that I do in that particular case. But a lot of the times I do. And what I have found is I've developed a lot more willingness to be openly critical of our policies as a nation. And that is not acceptable conversation in certain circles. We'll put it that way. Yeah. So, you know, that is how I was raised as well. And it was, I will say this, that what has shocked me is as we have, uh, as I've gone along my journey of liberalism, always the liberal, I mean, just, I, I came out left. That's just exactly, you know, I was born with a, a bleeding heart and a, and a concern for people. And I used to be terrified that I'd get to a certain age and suddenly become so, I don't know what happens to some people, but they, they suddenly turn like a hard right when they get older. And, yeah. uh, um, that's not happening with me. I'm actually <laughs> seeming yeah. to make more of a left, but there's but no not. more right to go anymore. That's I mean, right. like, exactly. You guys got it all. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, and exactly. Like I, I used to hear that all the time is like, you know, Southern conservative family, you know, you go to college like, oh, they're going to turn you into a big lefty. You're going to become a liberal. And then just wait, when you get older, you're out in the real world, you're going to be conservative. I'm like, no, nah, actually, I'm a socialist now. So that didn't really work out. <laughs> you know what I am <laughs> noticing, though, is that there is, you know, as people who are engaged and involved, who identify left, left center, you know, left of left, maybe, uh, and who would, who, if someone were to call us a liberal would probably, I don't need, like we'd bristle at it. Yeah, uh, we would get mad. <laughs> yeah, that's like, right. I do. you. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> You're a liberal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like your mama said what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but with an understanding that like, we are like living in this failing liberal world. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, what I was going to say is, is we look more to what the establishment has been unable unwilling and actually just refusing to do not even like you know we don't have the political will we don't want to we don't want to yeah. we're not going to do it and that as you i don't know if it's is the world moving and we're staying still in our values or are we truly evolving to see 
in such a way that the that at times it's hard to distinguish what's going on with Democrats or Republicans. They seem to be all working for the same team. Like, what's changing, us or that? I don't think that, like, I, you know, my politics have changed a lot over the, the years, but that's mostly a function of my understanding of what is truth and right. my understanding of the world and the experiences of other people. I don't think views have dramatically changed. There is some change. Like, I, I definitely, I grew up with, and I, to a large degree, I even believed in that bootstrap mentality, which I know to be bullshit now. But it's, uh, I, I don't think that my values have changed in terms of, like, I've always believed that we should take care of people. I've always believed that no one deserves to be without a roof over their head or wondering where their next meal is coming from. I've always believed that we have the capacity. I believe that we have the creativity and the um, intelligence and the, the, we, did, we have the ability to solve these problems, but we're choosing not to. And that is the problem with the political establishment. And that's why I get mad when you call me a liberal, which no, nobody does because I kind of skipped that. Like I went... <laughs> I went from like center-ish, center-right to like left of like Pelosi to socialist pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> right. Bill, how about you? I mean, do you, have your values changed over time? Or are you, or have you maintained the lens and the more you've learned, you've been able to sort of, you know, parse these, these big issues and you just left. You're just, uh, you know, a Marxist. <laughs> yeah. For me, it was some of the, some of my values have probably changed over time. Right. I mean, I grew up in a relatively right-wing culture that was, I would say, arguably shifting pretty dramatically right over the last 20 years in a response to deindustrialization. A lot of that, again, went kind of like untalked about. As far as when I really, like, my time in the military made me understand just how much money this country has. And it's kind of commonplace for the MMT folks, you know, today to say we can do whatever Congress prioritizes. And, like, I've seen that happen. Congress and the federal government prioritized war and they overturned, what, you know, seven to ten governments over the last 20 years. Now, that's very destructive. I mean, I would argue the U.S. federal government has been a very destructive force, arguably at home and abroad with its policies over the last 20 years. And I think for me, over that 20-year period or so, I, I kind of... I was a deep believer, right? Like, I joined this country's military, right? Like, I mean, I'm a patriot, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. I, like, I get to carry that card, you know? So, and part, part of that was due to poverty, right? You know, you, I can do a kind of Monday morning quarterbacking about the decision to join and everything. And there's definitely an economic component there. But part of it was, a you know, a belief that the military is, tries to could be concerned about some form of justice, right? And, I mean... I I think that's a question that needs to be grappled with within our, the upper echelons of the ranks of the U.S. military. Like, is what you're doing right? Should you be right. doing it? Because I can tell you, I know for sure that it's happening, you know, in the in the lower ranks and has been the entire time. Like, there is a deep diversity of thought. Now, there is a obviously a kind of a homogenous, uh, a right-wing, apolitical tinge to just being in the military. But there is, like, there are a lot of, you know, legit thinking, very concerned 
genuine, good-hearted people that are in the military. Right. Yeah. It's not all just you know bloodthirsty. You know. Uh, right. And just real, real quick though, I'm just like yeah. one one prime example for like when I was like just a like a personal type of epiphanal type thing. It's just you know there's this kind of relatively famous. If you're if I say anything's famous, it just means like 15 other people who follow politics. You know, know <laughs> this thing. So it's like, but there's a somewhat famous video of Milton Friedman where he's talking about and he's written about it and right wingers and libertarians always do this kind of thing they're like oh you know how did we get this pencil you hold up a pencil it's like oh he's got the brace for the eraser the wood the lead well that didn't just come from anywhere that came from markets that feed into all those products and essentially that is just uh this this pencil is made by magic whereas the invisible hand would supposedly arrange all these economic and social relations to make this pencil whereas what i liked about marx is like he's like no everything in that pencil is you know has been mined from somewhere and there's been a you know a deep kind of like i kind of subscribe to the labor theory of value and don't ask me to explain it but whatever but i kind of just intuitively just i tend to believe that you know any commodity that we look at does derive some form of its value from the labor inputs and that those labor inputs are a result of a complex series of social relations so it's not some invisible hand it's really over the last 20 years the forces making your pencil was different than the forces making your pencils 40 years prior to that so you know so it's like you'd have to kind of like analyze the relationships and the supply chains etc etc and that's kind of lends itself much more to a marxist analysis and this type of libertarian invisible hand analysis that's how i became a leftist it's interesting that the, the, that point about thinking about labor, particularly earlier, we were talking about this emerging consciousness of our shared struggle uh, around the world. And that is something that I have had the great privilege to be able to engage in conversations like that with people from all over the world, because I, I not only am an expat myself, but I work with people who are also expats from literally every corner of the world. I worked with people from hundreds of countries, literally, and, or well, over under countries, I'll put it that way. And And there has been, over the last 10 years in particular, there have been so many of those conversations where we talk about like our economic prospects, our economic struggles, our frustrations with the way that work functions, the way that our jobs function. And there is a need, There, it is happening, but there needs to be a much more conscious, concerted effort to build that class solidarity and that class consciousness and that understanding of how much our struggle is really shared with people all over the world. And that, that yeah. is that is a connection that we we have to seek out and foster and make more people aware of because it's like the these kinds of protests are happening all over the world. You know, there's a reason why the Occupy movement really resonated with people all over the world because some people were already conscious of it. Some people were waking up to the same fact. They were experiencing some of the same collapses. And it was just a moment to see like, oh, holy shit, a lot of people out there that think just like I do. I, I talk to people all the time, particularly in in parts of Asia where I've lived, developing countries there, where people had this vision of America, where the U.S. is just this promised land where everybody's living, just this this wealthy, extravagant life where if if I can just find a way to get to America, I'm going to be in a really good position like that too. And um, my husband and I have had conversations with with folks that we've worked with about how it's just, it's not like that. This 
this is the reality that most Americans are are living with. And that struggle is more visible now than it was 20 years ago or 15 years ago, thanks to social media. It is, it's easier for us to communicate and to make that connection clear. But we have a lot of work to do in terms of our discourse where we on the left need to be consciously building these relationships and consciously building these bridges with each other and with people all over the world that are in that same struggle. I agree. And, you know, and I think when we think yep. about people on the left, I, I feel like this is a different time than anybody on the left has done enough work to understand. I think that there are people who, you know, that the uh, the saying, the uh, uh, using the master's tools, there's so much of this, we're going to dismantle it when the things that we're doing to quote unquote dismantle it are essentially just the same tools and the same things that, and I'm talking about people who are active as activists who proudly do a thing in opposition to something, I find that they are really mired in the binary, you know, right-wrong, win-loss, left-right equation, which I think is unnatural and unhealthy to kind of adhere to that. But I also think that it is one thing to feel progressive and to have progressive values, then implement these regressive trials and purity tests and all of this stuff that I think is, I know that it's a frustration that the three of us share about about the left, and that's going to be a big part of what we talk about. You know, and I think this is an important thing. I know that we've been uh, talking for some time here, and we're getting close to the end of the first episode. I think that's important to me is to get to a place where you can be critical of an idea and not be accused of burning down the house. Hey. You know, and I, we're bad at that. We're bad at the left, particularly. Yeah. And I think related to that is the fact that there's a lot of folks on the left right now that feel like the fight is in conquering the argument online and to persuade people to move all the way to your position right. in the course yeah. of that one argument. And that is just not how human beings work. And I think each one of us on this podcast is, is a testament to that. I mean, having come from the various backgrounds that we've come from and experienced our different points of radicalization. Like my journey to this point in my political orientation is something that started 20 years ago, was mm -hmm. accelerated 10 years ago and was accelerated further five years ago. And I'm still here and I'm still learning all the time. I'm still developing all the time. And it, this pandemic has created an opportunity that we are currently squandering on the left, where instead yeah. of trying to bludgeon people into believing the correct thing, we should be listening to people's pain and we should mm -hmm. be talking to them about the world that we could build if we worked together to do that and start to build those relationships and that class consciousness and less make it less about and I'm not I'm not I want to be very clear I'm not talking about a red brown alliance here I'm not talking about like let's go out and march with proud boys no like, no, no no absolutely not no, definitely yeah. freaking not but your neighbor that may have voted for Trump Maybe, I don't know, but somebody who is at least willing to have a conversation about like how fucked up it is that our country just expected us to go back to work and oh well some of us are just gonna have to die like at they least have that. a conversation about yeah yeah like yeah. like we should be able to have a conversation with people about why that's not okay and why it's okay for them to be mad about it and, and you like maybe maybe um you know stampeding against the, the vaccine is not the the most productive way to to protest that but your anger is understandable. 
Right, yeah, yeah. And your hesitance to believe just anything that's being spoon-fed to you because that, yeah, I mean, we, we live in a world where there is a, you know, as I said earlier on the program too, there is a, there's quite a difference between what happened and what you hear on the news. It, it's similar only in beginning and end, but that middle part gets really homogenized, gets really sort of, just, you know, cleaned up. Yeah, and I kind of want that disclaimer can probably go with the, the my opening or intro or whatever. But like personally, like I view myself as kind of an iconoclast when it comes to ideas in a sense that like nothing's off limits. You've got to shred it. It's like you said, Michael Brooks said about, you know, be tough, brutal, ruthless with systems and, you know, be kind to people. I'm like that, right? Like. I I have no respect for hardly any idea. I just don't care. It's just whether the idea fits the time, you know, that's the thing. Right. You know, so so it's like I agree 100 percent that it's difficult for people to change one opinion, much less 100. You know, and yeah. we live in a time where these analyses of, of white supremacy put forward by Cornel West and other movement folks that are putting forward uh, anti-colonialist or, or decolonization analyses mm-hmm. like there's a lot of power in those analyses. If you take them seriously, it does require a certain modification of your worldview, but it's not one that's right. forced. It's it's just simply saying in your heart and mind, can you rectify certain things? And if you can't, you have to abandon something. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly how my journey to the left began. You know, it started when I suddenly like had a, a six, 75% drop in my income and everything was way harder than it should have been. And getting out was way harder. And this whole idea of meritocracy, pulling yourself out, like it was all bullshit. Like I went to so many jobs, uh, interviews that I was completely qualified for and I was disregarded for some dumb, dumbass reason or another. And, you know, that was my first kind of taste of it at age like 25 or so. It, it was that cognitive dissonance of seeing like, uh, here's a thing that I was always told this is how the world works. And I'm now experiencing something different. And I have to work out why is that the case? Why is yeah. why is the thing that I'm experiencing not matching up with the thing that I've been told? And there are so many people because of the pandemic that are in a space where they're receptive to that conversation, but we're not talking to them right now. We're either shouting at them because, you know, we're, we're, we're just mad at them for, you know, being dumb, I guess, for being uh, I, I am I, again. I am mad at the people that are like virulently opposing the uh, the vaccine for dumb reasons because of the problems that they've created. I am mad, and I'm not sorry about that. But we do have to still engage in dialogue with folks, and we can't. It's your political journey is never linear. It's it's not a thing like I started off here and then I made a straight line and I'm now in this other place. Like you you make little steps along the way. Sometimes you shift back a little bit. We need to respect where people are in the journey. We need to be able to talk to them, meet them where they are and talk to them on a level that they're ready to receive the information and, and really hear them. We need to listen to people. That is something that the left is not good at. We're not good at listening to folks. No, we're not. No, and and there is a a sort of um like we want a utopia and we will do it by this way and you can only think in this way in this authoritarianism that arguably we're kind of set on a path to to sort of oppose. And it's it is odd to me when I talk to or engage with or more often than not nowadays choose not to engage with people on the left who are again sort of instituting the tools that are used by the right. You know, it doesn't matter if you're right or wrong. What matters 
members is that follow my instructions and be patriotic and do the thing and pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And yes, you do have bootstraps and, you know, like work hard and, you know, work smarter, <laughs> all of that stuff. But, um, you know, one of the things I was going to say as we kind of look to the future of this is that I believe that one of the issues we have on the left is that it's it appears to me that we don't spend enough time discussing what is the world that we want. Like we want mm -hmm. Medicare for all, but then what? Like what? Yeah. Fundamentally, what are we hoping to see in the future? And and have you two spent time thinking about like what is that perfect world, or is you know understanding that there's no perfect world? But I mean, do you think yeah. about a time when when we get some of the things that we've been fighting for? Well, so I'll just be honest. So I'm not necessarily a utopian at all. Like I don't, I believe that humans are too corruptible, powers too wily, you know, like yeah. it, it, it's just, you're always going to have to ask the question, you know, who watches the watchman? And the answer is always going to be other watchmen, you know, like, mm -hmm. because there's always going to be this type of like reconceptualization, this type of endless debate about what things are, how things are distributed, how they should be distributed. So, and not only that, that, it's like we clearly are having a hard time even understanding the material where we live in. I mean, just we yeah. let the economy re-oligopolize under an antitrust law regime. <laughs> yeah. We had an antitrust law regime and we still have a monopolized economy, you yeah. know? Yeah, we yeah. do. So just a prime example, what I would say, we, we just to link it back to earlier on in this segment, which is Corey was talking about the evictions and, and some of these other issues that were issues just really due to a matter of a few hundred bucks, right? What, why are we in this pandemic right now? We still don't have a UBI. We, we, like we know right now that we had the federal government could do this. And we also know that it would likely eliminate or, or it greatly ease the issue of evictions. It would likely end, if not tremendously reduce, you know, misdemeanor crimes, misdemeanor theft, misdemeanor robberies, because most of these crimes are often generally crimes of poverty, you know, so like, I don't know if this current government is too corrupt to move or if they're scared in the sense that I think that like they're afraid that if they really unleash the, the power of the federal government, like what it really has the capacity to do or to facilitate that they think they may lose control or they may be disempowered in some degree. All right. Right. That, that's probably part of it, too. I got some thoughts about that. So I do think that there is an element of extreme corruption, absolutely, because we know about how money influences politics in this country in particular, which is the thing is I talk to people in other parts of the world about their electoral systems. Like they just cannot get their brains around the way elections work in America. It just blows their minds that it's that easy to just buy politicians. That's right. Just naked, naked. Ambition. Just, just yeah, like, naked. here you go, have some money and then I'm going to write a bill for you and you're going to pass it and it's all legal and it's totally fine. Like it's not fine, but that's that's the system we have. So yes, their corruption is 100% part of it. But I actually think that the other part of it is is not that they are scared. I think it's that they have not been able to imagine the alternative. And part of the reason they've not been able to imagine the alternative is because we don't talk about the alternative. And that has started to change in the last six years since Bernie's 2016 campaign, when we began to, or when more of us came forward and began to articulate, hey, there's another 
way that we could be doing things. It, it started with with Occupy. It started with the you know the conversation around the housing bubble crisis. But it definitely like the national conversation really did accelerate with the Bernie 2016 campaign. And now we have people in Congress that are willing to take this framing and talk about different solutions, and they are making an impact. This protest that Cori Bush spontaneously organized on the Capitol steps in protest of the eviction crisis, some of the people that showed up to that, and I don't mean the people that showed up for the photo op like Chuck Schumer, I'm talking about some of the lesser known fly under the radar members of Congress who are definitely not progressive, but they feel more empowered to come forward and say like, this is a good idea actually. Jimmy Gomez is a great example. He um, represents, I forget which district in California. Jimmy Gomez is not a, not someone I'm a progressive, you know? I wouldn't call him a Pelosi Democrat either. Um, I think he's probably somewhere in the middle, but, you know, he, it, like, this was just such a common sense thing for him, and he showed up, and he was, like, in the center of it, and he got almost no coverage or attention for it, so he wasn't there for the clicks. He was there to join that fight and to lend his, his support to that fight, and he wasn't the only one. There were a lot of moderate Democrats that came forward and said, this is a thing that Congress really ought to do. You know, the thing about this eviction crisis. Last year, Congress appropriated, uh, I want to say billions, billions of dollars for rental assistance. And when the eviction moratorium first expired in August, 85% of it had not been distributed. And I, I read that number repeatedly, and I was struggling to understand, like, uh, we appropriated the funds, the money was there. Why wasn't this rental assistance distributed? Well, I have since learned. And this is a byproduct of 40 years of conservative economic programming. When they appropriated the funds, they established that the money would be distributed to the landlords. And what happens is the renters have to apply for the rental assistance. The landlords have to then supply information to the government agency that's overseeing the distribution of those funds. I don't, I'm not sure which agency. It, it's probably like housing and urban development. But anyway, you know, whichever agency was, was charged with distributing the rental relief funds for COVID would then go back to the landlords and say, hey, your tenant has applied for rental assistance. Here's some information that we need from you. And a lot of landlords just said, I'm not going to give it to you. I want them gone. I want them to be evicted. Some of them have been in court recently saying this. I yeah. want this person to be evicted because then they can raise the rent. And it also predisposes, or the the idea is that you would assume that the tenant and the landlord have a good relationship enough to have a conversation prior. Exactly. To like, I mean, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so the problem is, like, you know, people began to ask the very obvious question: Why didn't we just give the money to the tenants? And it's because of all these decades of conservative economic programming that tells us, well, if you just give money to poor people, they're going to spend it on lobster tails and whatever the hell else they imagine that they think poor people will spend money on if you give it to them and not like literally keeping a roof over their family's head. If we had right. put that money directly in the hands of renters, we would not be facing an eviction crisis right now. That is the That's hard right. fucking fact. That's the right. That's, yeah. that's, that, that is the truth. And neoliberals think everybody loves complexity the way they love complexity. And that's just not the case. And part of it is the complexity. Part of it is they design these programs to be more controllable by local power, you know, local. Well, and also uh, and also make it make it so like, you know, you've got to work hard for this. You know, you've got to you know, it can't just be easy. You got to right. have all these. You got to you got to go to this place and fill out these forms and do this stuff. And then that's to prepare you for the next 
next rung of administrative violence. I mean, it, it is uh, it is designed yeah. way because it's like, if you're not working, we might as well make what you have to do to get this resource work. Right. Now, so exactly. check this out. There's a parallel to this this example, too. Uh, Nathan Tank, is, I think, has written on it. He's a modern monetary theory guy, Marxist thinker, really brilliant guy. But he was highlighting something that uh, it's very clear during the beginning of the pandemic, the, the 40 years of corruption and corrosion and, you know, lack of maintenance on uh, state-based unemployment insurance systems. Like, there were tens of millions of people who did not either get the increase that they were qualified for or just get unemployment in general because of dilapidated infrastructure on a they state level. They couldn't get in. They, they just couldn't get in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. I think Tankus and, and there's probably a lot of other scholars and stuff that write on this, but why do we still have state-based unemployment insurance? Like, it should be federalized, really. It's just, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, and and the reason why those systems have never been upgraded and made more efficient is because they don't want it to be efficient for people to get assistance. They want it to be hard. They want it to be a burden because they want people to have the mindset that I had when I was laid off 20 years ago that like, oh, well, I guess I got to, you know, borrow money and figure this out. And I I was not far away from being homeless. Like I could have if I if push came to shove, I could have gone back to Alabama and moved in with my parents. I was not what I wanted to do. But, you know, that is a choice that a lot of people have made and again, struggled to get back out of it. And then that is presuming you have, you know, parents that have a home that you can move into. (laughs) That's right. That's right. A lot of people did not have that privilege. You know, I at least had that lifeline available to me if if push had come to shove. But, you know, it's we, we make it hard on purpose because we have created the narrative that when people are are struggling economically, that it's their own fault. And it, yeah. it is a moral failing of some kind on their part. And so to help them is wrong because it makes you an enabler as opposed to like, no, this economy that we have is exploitative and violent. And, and all right. of us are living on the edge of the blade. Many of us are in delusion about how close to the edge of the blade we actually are. And that we need to create a society where we have these social safety nets. We redistribute this money to build a more stable society for all of us. And that's what we need to be able to articulate. That's right. Well, and and just a point about the utopians. I am not a utopian, but I do believe we need utopians. You know, I do like yeah. reading utopians. I do like thinking about, I mean, I, I like thinking about, who doesn't like thinking about utopian thoughts, you know? I'm just yeah, not yeah, one yeah, at yeah. the end of the day. Yeah, well, you know, and what I was going to say is that, you know, looking to the future, one of the things that I would like is a, a world wherein there is true accountability and true sort of understanding of the mechanisms that have heretofore been sort of obscured and I got a problem. There's a problem there, Troy. (laughs) The federal government, they don't prosecute rich people. That's right. They do not. And that's why we started this podcast to persecute rich people. And (laughs) we will be the jury. uh, We will be the judge and we will uh, be the execution. I'm kidding. I'll do it. I'll take it. I'll take it. Not really. We're not really kidding, actually. (laughs) But what what this is, you know, what this podcast is for me and what we hope to provide is access to people doing amazing things, real things, people really doing the work and to find the words and the and identify the the philosophical sort of underpinnings of of some of the more tumultuous stuff that's going on. And, you know, I would love to be a part of an intellectual 
exploration of solutions that aren't necessarily about the problem is solved, but that the human condition being the problem, that we create a world where no matter what your age or race or gender, whatever your orientation is across all those identifiers or markers, that you get to live and you get to experience the world unshackled either by people around you or, you know, misunderstandings that you have based on the world around you. I want people to thrive and I want to be in a world where I get to thrive alongside my neighbors and family and other people that are thriving and not at the expense of environment or humanity or, and, and that, you know, to me, that's about as utopian as, as it can be. Um, but anyway, yeah. So I just want to kind of throw that in there. No, I'm glad you said that. You say you're not a utopian. I suppose I suppose I am in a way. I uh, co-host a, a podcast called Gay Space Communism, <laughs> where we talk about Star Trek and politics and the world that Trek promises us and how we actually can achieve that. And we also spend a lot of time dissecting. We have a lot of fun on the show. We make a lot of jokes. And um, Troy's been on a couple of times. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, but we, we also talk a lot about how this utopian future that is depicted in this franchise, how it falls short in some ways and ways that it, it could be better and, you know, talk about accountability in that context. And, you know, so you were, you are saying earlier about like who watches the watchers, like there's definitely elements of that in Star Trek. There's, there's always somebody in the Federation or in Starfleet that's, you know, going off and doing something that they should not be doing, or that's contradictory to the values of the universe. And, uh, and that's the conflict that's being resolved in the course of the show or the film or whatever. But I do believe that to a degree, I believe that utopian futures are possible. I also, agree with you, Bill, that people are always going to be people and there will always be people who are corrupted and there will be people who will stray from that. So we're never going to achieve like a place of absolute perfection, but I believe that we can get very close to it. And I believe that you have to be able to envision it to get close to it. That's and right. It, and yes. that, that fighting for that is worth it. Yeah. Absolutely. I agree. And so that's what this is. This is a podcast about fighting and we're going to fight until <laughs> we're going to fight each other. No, we are. We're going to have some really, really interesting conversations. So we've lined out some really interesting discussions. We're going to be bringing in some different subject matter experts. We got a lot of like really great things lined up for you all. We are going to be talking a lot about COVID because I mean, it is the reality that we're that's dealing right. with here. We're going to be talking about like what it has exposed about profit-driven healthcare, the way that it has just really really hurt healthcare workers. We're going to talk about the impact on workplace safety. We're going to talk about uh, labor organizing, both in the context of the pandemic and just labor organizing in general. There's really a, a big upsurge right now in labor organizing, and you just love to see it. Um, I'm really, yeah. really happy to see all of the work that's being done in the labor space right now. And it's, a, it's an area that I have a lot of room to learn. So I'm looking forward to us bringing some folks on to talk around um, organizing. We're definitely going to be talking about criminal justice. Um, Abolition. Yeah. Yeah, I know that's an area of expertise for you, Bill, and we have a lot of interesting angles that we're going to dig into about reform within reform and abolition. Abolition really is going to be a very key part of it within the criminal justice system because so much of it is, it's not that it's broken, it is working as it's designed, and that's why that's we right. do have to dismantle a lot of it and just well rebuild. We're also going to talk about tech. We're going to talk yeah. about just uh, everything about tech, how it impacts our lives. We're going to be talking about the way that 
tech has redefined the workplace, how a lot of these tech companies presented themselves as utopian employers. They did. Remember Google's don't be evil, and now they're like literally funneling data to the NSA. Very evil. Yeah, now it's just evil. (laughs) Well, they always were. That's the shitty thing is that they always were. They just had like foosball tables and free lunch, and that's all it was. It was all a disguise. Scooters. Exactly. And anyone who had followed the work of Julian Assange would have known that a decade ago. Mm-hmm, exactly. So we're going to be talking about Assange. Yeah, we'll be talking about Assange too, sure. We're, we'll be talking about white supremacy. Are you a racist? What What even is a racist? Uh, there's a lot of people on the left that uh, labor under the delusion that they do not suffer from the problem of being a racist. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you, you'll hear people that say, you know, uh, I don't see color, and that's the very first sign of a white supremacist. <laughs> well, right. yeah, and it's... Not the very first, but... It's, it's even like, yeah. more insidious than that on the left in particular because we... we you know, we've got a lot of folks that are working so hard to be good allies that they um, overcorrect and become very patronizing about it. Uh, um, yeah, and so yeah, how yeah. do we, how do we, uh, all of us on this podcast are are white, you know, what what is the work that we are doing to dismantle our internalized racism? Because we do all have and that open dialogue about how we've messed it up and, uh, yes. you know, and, and, and to learn and to take ourselves on a journey. And as it intersects with people of color that are in this space that we discuss that in a way that is not it's not about teach us to be better white people exactly it's about how we do the work to become better that's right exactly and 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 we're going to have conversations about about that and you know hopefully create a space where where people can feel comfortable kind of starting an internal dialogue with themselves about about those kind of things you know we're also going to be talking about american militarism um that's something that both bill and i have had a lot of experience with and uh you know just uh when we talk about ending forever wars like what does that actually mean um what what we talk about the military you mean the war on terror didn't end when we left afghanistan Yeah, funny enough, it did not. You know, I I had said, and and I know that we don't have the full count because a lot of it is happening clandestinely. Um, but you know, I had reported what I had, what I was aware of, that we had been militarily involved in at least nineteen to twenty low twenties different countries as a part of the global war on terror. But the more recent reporting is is closer to eighty five, and that's probably still a low ball. So I was going to say it's probably still low. Yeah, that's probably still a low ball. It's probably almost every country in the world honestly so yeah we're gonna be talking about that we're gonna be talking about supply chain we're gonna be talking about a lot of great stuff y'all we are but yeah i, I want to throw something in here real fast Corey. and 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 you said something all of this you know we, we've talked all about this you know uh the, the three of us have cumulatively spent a lot of time in these discussions just because but we do want people to listen and to take some stuff away from this but we also we're doing this because we do this this is this is what we do and package it and put it up in a podcast is a further sort of commitment to doing the right thing and to do it publicly and openly. So as much as we hope that people can listen and enjoy, make no mistake, you know, we're we're growing and learning and that's what this is about. Uh, so we'll Absolutely. probably fuck, up, fuck a few things up. I'll go for look sure. for that. Yeah. Can't yeah. be denied anymore. We're all coming out as podcasters. <laughs> <laughs> that's what right. will my mother say? Got another podcast uh. to listen to. <laughs> 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 oh goodness well um i think yeah so this is uh, we have a really good foundation here i think we're gonna have some really really engaging and interesting discussions and hopefully yeah. give everyone a lot to think about and not just to think about but to walk away with like here's a thing that i could be doing differently and here's something i can start doing right now we really want to be able to help ourselves 
and also help others find actions to progress on these ideas that we're bringing to the right. Yeah, yeah. Take it, take it out, out of the digital space and exactly. uh, do something. Like put it to work. Put it to work. Yeah, yeah. And learn. Learn in the field. Learn as you go. So uh, this feels like a good spot for us to conclude this sort of episode zero. And uh, I've enjoyed the conversation, as I always do, with the two of you. And uh, I'm looking forward to what we do. Yeah. You can follow us on Twitter at, uh, what is our, our Twitter? Is it Breaking Left Pod? Breaking Left Pod. Um, you yeah. can also, yeah, email us at uh, breakingleftpod at gmail.com. That's right. Yeah. So follow us on Twitter and we'll be setting up a Patreon soon if we haven't already. Uh, so if we need to come back and add that, we will, Ren. I guess we should plug our individual stuff too, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you can catch me on Twitter at CM Archibald. I am also one of the co-hosts, as I mentioned earlier, of Gay Space Communism, a podcast about track and politics and utopian futures. Uh, you can follow that on at Gay Space Cast on Twitter. Yeah, that's where you'll find me. How about you, Bill? Uh, I don't really have anything to plug here. I don't. <laughs> What's your Bill? Twitter? <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't have a public. I just uh, this is my avatar. No, uh, uh, that's right. Yeah, Bill. Bill. Yeah, Bill has a. Uh, yeah, he's okay. I well, have... if you want to talk to Bill, then then reply to us on on Twitter, and we'll we'll make him read it. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll maybe I'll uh, take over the the pod uh, Twitter on Sundays or something. Okay. Yeah. Why not? Why not? Yeah, and you'll find me at Meta underscore Troy. And you know, I, I unfortunately, if you were to follow me, you would see a mix of tabletop role play industry de-nerdism and you know political shilling or progressive candidates so great tastes yeah all right thanks everybody good show see you oh yeah you know what we'll be doing this weekly right yeah so we'll see you next week uh yeah that's the goal